I'm Anthony Walsh and this is the Roadman Podcast, the show where we empower you with the tools to optimize your health, your happiness and your longevity. I'm thrilled to introduce Olivia O'Toole, a name that's not just familiar, but legendary in the world of football. Olivia is the record goal scorer for the Irish international team. She's not only left her mark on the field, but she's also set an inspiring example of how to rise above challenges and transform obstacles into stepping stones for success. Born and raised in the heart of Dublin's inner city, Olivia's journey to becoming an international football icon is nothing short of remarkable. Amidst an environment where opportunities were scarce and societal expectations often limited ambitions in her peers, Olivia's passion for football and sport burned bright. From playing in the streets of Sheriff Street to dominating international stadiums, her journey is a testament to the power of a compelling vision. This story isn't about football, however. This is a story about breaking barriers, challenging stereotypes, and paving the way for future generations of female athletes. Here's a little taste of what awaits you today. The team that I was playing against wouldn't continue. That's and embarrassing for them, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> and that's what I said. I said, you're asking me to leave a girl, to leave an 11-a-side biased team because you're afraid. And he turned around and he says, yeah, you're too good. So I got the letter, I think, the following Tuesday, and I said to my ma, I said, ma, I'm going away, I'm going to play European uh, football with Ireland, with Spain. And she said, ah, that's very good, isn't it, Lydia? She hadn't got a clue what it was. Like, the buyers got everything with the resources that they had. They kept it away from the buyers as well. Yeah. You know, so that said, that I tell you, the buyers was getting secondhand, we were getting toward world. Yeah. You know, <laughs> literally toward world. Olivia Till, welcome to the Roadman Podcast. Thanks very much, Anthony. How are you? Fine, great, great form. What's your relationship like with football these days since you retired? I, it's a relationship that I have with football. It's like, it's a love of football. So I go to every single game, every women's game that I can get my hands on. Seriously? You're still, yeah. you're hardcore still? Oh yeah, like today, I just put away my phone. I'm at to be watching Manchester United on playing at Villa. They're winning 2-0. And <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, well, I'd have... The Premier League ladies WSL on my laptop, then I'd watch the FAI player on my telly. Then I'd watch the League of Ireland women. So on any given Saturday, I'd be watching three games. It's mad because we were chatting a little bit off air and my life until I was probably, definitely till I was 18, 19, I didn't actually know a world outside football. All I'd done was go to Mitch from school, play football all day, win the park, <laughs> practice free kicks on my own all day. Yeah. Wait till the lads got off school, play football with them until it got dark. And then get up the next day and repeat it all over all again. All over again. I could have told you who was playing in, you know, Division 3, I could name the whole team, their bench, everyone. Mm. But then when I got to that point where I was like, okay, I'm not going to make it as a pro, I was like, boom, I couldn't name 40 Arsenal players now. And really? I was a really big Arsenal fan <laughs> at the time. So it's funny, isn't it, how people have different relationships. Some people just walk away from it after. Oh, yeah, I've known, like, girls like that played with Arsenal for the best part of 15 years of their life and they've no involvement in football whatsoever now. You know, like Emma Bourne, like she's doing the commentary. Yvonne and Tracy play for Arsenal. Kayla Grant plays for Arsenal. But they're not involved in football. You know, I think um, Yvonne is actually getting up uh, at 3 United. She's getting involved there. But the likes of Kayla, who played 15 years for Arsenal, she has no involvement whatsoever. Which I find mad because... When you grow up playing football, to me, it's a passion. So your yeah, passion is with you for life, you know? So that's why I'm still involved and I have my own team now. I couldn't just walk away from it. Do you still kick football? Do you still, I know you're involved coaching, but would you still meet the girls and have a five-a-side? Well, no, not really now because I'm way over like the age. I'm 53 now next month, you know, so... The aches and pains are creeping oh, in. Oh, I can feel them. Like, my brain wants to play constantly. But the minute I stop playing, I have to take two pairs of tomorrow because I'm in agony. <laughs> and that's for probably 20, 30 minutes of football. I actually played a charity game there three weeks ago for Shelbourne Ladies for a girl who was sick. And I played the whole 90 minutes and I was so sore after it. Like, so sore. I had to have a bat. And then two paracetamol <laughs> and a, hot, a cup of hot chocolate after it, <laughs> you know, for the aches. But my brain wants to play, but my body can't. My dad's still the chairman of the local football team. And so I have a load of friends who are, I used to play with them. They're all managers and stuff now. But I, you know, still run a bit. I'm still cycling. So I still kind of try to stay fit. 
And in my head, I thought, nah, I could easily go back to football at yeah. any time. But I went back last year with the lads team and, you know, they're all 10, 15 years younger than me now. And I done two sessions in pre-season. My God, I, I, know. I felt like I, I can't even imagine how I used to do that. Jumping, sliding, running different yeah. directions. I felt like I jumped out of a car the next day. I was <laughs> sore everywhere. <laughs> That's my exercises now. I was going for a walk along the permanent <laughs> in Clontarf to the bridge and back. And that's it. I did it yesterday. Like, it's what I do. I go for walks now, hotel, and just to get out and just feel the air. But I do my training with the girls as well. So, so well, brand new set of Copa Monday. I was there with one wear if you're looking for a boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'll talk to you after the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm kind of curious because, you know, me and you were not exactly the same age, but. I feel like we played football in a similar era where you played on the streets and it was all people really done. Anywhere around Dublin, you could go onto any house in the state mm. and it was a game of football going. Like I used to go up to the park on a Saturday morning. We didn't play till Sundays. I'd go up to the park on a Saturday morning with my boots and just walk around and go, any games? And just some teams would be like, oh, we'll throw you on for 10 minutes if they mm. knew who you were. And that was the way. But culturally, it's so different now, 15, 20 years later, because... Every kid you see, even whether it's in the park or a restaurant, they're all on phones, they're all on iPads, they're a different shape. Different, it's a different generation. Like, I mean, when a, a boy of 16 and 17 says to me, I'm not interested in football, I'm like, well, what do you do with your life? You know, it's shocking. And I, this is me nephew, like, he's 80, he's no interest whatsoever. And he's not into games, he's just not a sporty person. But he'll sit and watch Man United play, do you know, like that. But he never touched the ball in his life. You know, so there is people out there that have no interest in it playing, but will watch them religiously, like the football. But is it impacting the skills end of it? Because I remember we've a little neighbour and I see him playing down the local park and oh, he must be 12 or 13 years old. And I was saying to him, oh, do the Maradona 7 for me there. And, you know, left yeah, foot solo, yeah. right foot solo, yeah. right knee, left knee, shoulder, shoulder, yeah. head. Like, I remember learning how to do that. I was probably eight or nine the yeah. first time I did that. Like, it's... Basic enough for anyone who plays football all for day. For keepy-uppies, yeah, yeah. Like, that's why you, that was the Maradona uh, keepy-uppie. And the, uh, if you say that to a child today, I like, I haven't got a clue. But what I noticed, Anthony, is in every single house in the state, no football. Yeah. A, a sign saying no football. And this is where it hurts me because I grew up in a house in the state and flats playing football against the wall, right foot, left foot, practice constantly on my own. And now kids can't do it. Yeah, I just don't, I uh, can't get my head around letting a child, not letting a child play in the housing estate if he hasn't got a park, you know? So that really, because the thing to me about footballers is the street footballer. Yeah. The street footballer you're talking about, Pele, Maradona, Messi, Ronaldo, every single one of them grew up in street football. But you will never get a player like them anymore because they're not allowed to play. Street football. And we had a whole era of that with Irish lads, definitely, yeah, where yeah. it's Robbie Keane, Damien Duff. Yeah. You know, you look at the states they're coming from, they're all coming from Tala, Crumlin, Tala, Crumlin, yeah, you know, yeah. places where football is just a religion. It was a social currency nearly in mm. school. You know, I went to a school that had kind of a, you know, mixed enough demographic to be some people who are middle class families, but a lot of working class mm. families in it as well. And it was a hard, tough school. But your currency in school, if you got picked on or not, was were you a good footballer? I always had a really easy time through school because I could play football. Yeah. And the, that social currency is kind of changing now, I think, in schools where it's, you know, it's nearly, are you into game and are you, it's it's a bizarre world I don't even really recognise. Yeah, but when did you ever t think that a child, a boy of 14 years of age, go into school and say, I'm not into football, I'm not into sports, I want a game. Like the game and thing now is a big thing now at the moment. Yeah. But to me, it's a lazy sport because you just sit down with a, a stick in your hand and do this and do that. And the kids is not getting exercises, you know. And I just don't, I feel like the schools could do more for, because there's a school up there, O'Connell's, they don't allow footballs in the yard yeah, when they're playing. They get them a tennis ball. To me, that's getting the football away from the child. Do you know what I mean? remember you used to have them matches in the yard, but there'd be like maybe 20 different matches going on in the same in yard. The same so everyone's time. trying to touch each <laughs> yeah. other in this chaotic game. Yeah, yeah. And jumpers for goalposts, just jumpers everywhere all over the yard. So you're talking about O'Connell's. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Cherry just up the road from O'Connell's. Like my brothers and went to O'Connell's school. And um, what was life like growing up? Life was, it was great. It, I, when I think about my childhood, I smile. 
So it was obviously a good childhood because all I remember is, like you just said there, it was like a little routine. Left school, got your football, stayed out till eight, nine. Mother calling you in for your dinner, you don't want to go in. And it's the same thing every single day. But the only thing I didn't do, I didn't meet you on school like you. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that was my life. I went in, six years of age, my dad introduced me to Match of the Day. And I was memorised. The music. I memorised, absolutely. And I'm like, like talking about it now. And I'm 53, so you're talking. I was watching Match of the Day for nearly 46 years. Yeah. Six years of age, my dad introduced me to it. And to this day, I still watch it. Every day, There's every something Saturday. magical about it. I remember hearing... It was like the first time I heard the Beatles, the first time I heard that match of the day music. Yeah. Probably again, the same, my dad's from the same street as you and hearing that music, it was like a spell was cast on me as a kid. I was like, <laughs> this is all life is about is getting on this show. This How do I get on this show? This hour and a half we wait for for the whole week. When my dad talks about growing up in Sheriff Street, all he talks about is community, the crack, how people had each other's back and he loved it. Was that your That's experience? exactly the way I had to describe it. People, like, as you know, has a, hasn't got a good name because of the heroin epidemic, the robbed cars. And, but in the 2000s now, it's like people are just coming together for that. They're getting up running clubs, that they get up cycling clubs, football clubs, baby. You know, people just come together. If Like, for instance, if a girl had terminal cancer, people just come together and give them their dinner, look after the kids, make sure that the person who has the cancer is very well looked after before they go. And they do it with every single person in Sheriff Street. Like, I mean, when I did the Olympic, when I carried the Olympic torch, and I seen the amount of people out in Sheriff Street supporting me and my family, it was so humble. It was so, um, I was like gobsmacked that these amount of people were coming out to see this and the Olympic torch. And it just gives you a sense of feeling that you're overwhelmingly humbled to be in this community, you know? So... That's where I came from, Cherish, and I'm so, so proud from coming from there. I know it has a bad name, but I'll never, ever say to anybody, I don't come from there, because it's my life. That's where I came from. I loved growing up. Best time in my life was growing up in the flats, playing against the poles, playing against the walls, playing with my brothers and sisters. How big a role does football play in keeping you away from other temptations, like drink, drugs, antisocial stuff? Absolutely. 100%. I don't think I'd be here, Anthony, if I went the wrong way. Really? I wouldn't be here speaking to you, no. No, because I've lost numerous of friends through heroin, through drink, through drugs. And I remember saying to myself, if I go this way, I'm like, I, I won't be here yeah. for the next 10, 15 years. Sport's powerful like that, isn't it? Oh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. The football dragged, literally dragged me away from that, the drink and the drugs. Because if you went left... You are gone. If you go right in the right direction, you put an awful lot of willpower you needed to say to yourself, I have to go a different direction because if I'm going this direction, I won't be here for long. But what is that? Is it you have a vision in your head that you can be, you know, did you ever think it was possible for you to go on to become an Irish international player, record ever goal scorer? Not then. No, so not. what keeps you away from that when someone says to you, like a friend who, you know, regrettably was addicted to heroin for a while, I remember him saying to me, never try it because you'll absolutely love it. Yeah. And like, what keeps you from at that moment when someone says to you, Olivia, why don't you try this? What stops you doing it? It's just because I know I have a very, very, very addictive personality and it's, it's, my addiction was football. I knew if I went with the heroin and the drugs, I wouldn't be here, but... You have to understand, I had a passion for the game. And it was just, I lived, breathed and ate football. And I know if I hadn't got it, I wouldn't be here. But my friends, like, tormented me to go to the weekend drinking. and But I just knew I had a thing. I knew I was good at what I did. But I didn't think I had a, there was a career in it. Because when I was growing up, I had no women um, idols to look up to. Yeah. My idols were Steffi Graf and Martina Atalova playing tennis. Yeah. I didn't know any women footballers. and So me looking up to them, they kept me out of, I was like, well, if it's a sport and I can play for the rest of my life, well, I'm going to do it. And even them as idols, you know, it, it's great to have an idol to look up to, but they're not someone you can massively identify with because firstly, they're not Irish. Secondly, they're not working class mm -hmm. Dublin people and they're not footballers. So, 
it's so different for the girls now because the generation now, you know, your Katie McCabe's who are, you yeah. know, massive international stars, mm. they've been able to look at your generation and look at you and say, well, look, Olivia accomplished this with her background. What's my excuse? Well, Katie came from a tough uh, estate and talent as well. Like, you really? know, yeah, absolutely. And Katie's talent is a bit like Sheriff Street where does Rob Cars, drugs, everything. But she obviously went to the right, the right direction as well. It's very hard when people have a name for a, a like Sheriff Street. It's a drug den. It's nothing. The people you have to go into this into these communities and see what people other people do other than the rock cars and the, the drugs, because the other people come around, put their arm around you and say, "This is the direction you need to go. You can't go that direction." So there is people in the community that put their arm around, like Hugo Richardson. I was eleven years of age and. He put his arm around me. He says, you, you, you need to be here. You need to be playing with the boys because I know girls team. So, you know, like there's a few people around that I can count on my hand uh, that I am where I am because of them, because of a little few words that they says to me. But the role of environment, we all know now what creates athletes. It's the scientists will call it genotype plus phenotype equals outcome. The lay person will say it's the talent you're born with plus the environments mm. that you live in that equals your output. You could have the most talented person in the world, but if you put them in the wrong environment, they're never going to become a Lionel Messi. No, they're never, never. going to become a Katie McCabe. So you had undoubted natural talent, yeah. but then you have this environment that's trying to pull you in every direction. Yeah. David Gillick talked about when he took his running scholarship, for the first time he got around a group of people and he's like, whoa, this is my group. These are my people because... Yeah. They don't want to go out on the piss on a Friday, Saturday night because mm. they have a session the next day. They're talking about their splits on the track rather than what drugs they're going to take at the mm. weekend. And immediately he felt like, oh, I can relax. Wow. These are my yeah, people. I can yeah. relax. How did you carve out your people inside a world that was pretty chaotic? Well, I was um, I was actually in Foss and there was a girl there named Trisha Ryan. And it, I was 17, 18 and I was getting worried because I was at the being told I couldn't play with the boys anymore. And I was getting worried because there was no, I didn't know there was any girls teams around. And she asked me to go up to Drunk Hundred Ladies. So like that, what you just said, when I went into that environment at first, I was like, oh my God, these girls can play like me. <laughs> where, I never, where are these girls? I never knew they were around. And these girls could actually play like me. As in a good player, as in not just kicking the ball around yeah. and just... They were actually 4-4-2 in a formation that I seen on Match of the Day for my whole life. And when I went into this environment like David, they were speaking my language. They wanted to play football. They didn't want to go out drinking. They didn't want to take drugs. They just wanted to play football. So before going to them, you had to play on lads teams all the way up? Oh yeah, I played with a Sheriff Boys team from the age of 11 up to 17. Yeah, because... um, I did the one game that I did play was in Phoenix Park and I was 16 and I, I went up for a ball with it ahead and I actually accidentally busted it by his nose. And then all into the confusion, the, the manager, what is she doing here? She's a girl. And you got me manager like, and yeah, have you have you got a problem with that? He says, oh, no, but she, why is she playing with bias? Because I've no girls team, but the team wouldn't continue. And because you were good enough. Yeah, that's right. That's the main thing. But the, the team that I was playing against wouldn't continue. That's and embarrassing for them, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and that's what I said. I said, you're asking me to leave a girl, to leave an 11 aside biased team because you're afraid. And he turned around and he says, yeah, you're too good. So you were that good against the lads. Yeah, yeah. But see, this is the thing people don't realise. Like when people make it, like I remember Richie Dunn that mm. went on to be an Irish international footballer. And he was, I think, the age group above me. And it, when he got to the Premier League and Irish International, you know, even the jokes in the stands were about, you know, his, his second his touch second is a tackle. Touch, yeah. Like, you know, he's shocking, like, touch mm. for an international level. He looked absolutely brutal on mm. the pitch. But he was like leaning on Messi at yeah. under 16, <laughs> under 17. Yeah. Like, you would look at him and go, oh, my God, he can run the pitch at will. The gap is unbelievable. Like, when you see people now at 15, 16, lads going on, I'm going to be making a pro. Unless they're standing out at that level, like, you're a girl who's the best lad mm. in an under 15 <laughs> yeah. team. And that's what it takes to go on and be an international. Well, that's right, because I knew I was good because 
the boys never held back like the sheriff boys when we were training, you know, like 50-50s, slide tackles. They never held back. But when other teams knew I was a girl, they did. But it was the sorriest thing they ever did because we won the game, like, you know. And, but that day, I'll never forget it because I went over to Hugo and I says to Hugo, I says, Hugo, I'm, I won't be able to play football anymore. I want me to go and I start crying. And he was like, Liv, you don't worry about it. We'll sort it, we'll see. So we went to the Herald. Frankie's name was, he was a freelance journalist for a Herald. But he always knew, he followed my career from the age of 11 up. And he came over to me and he says, Livy, we have to do something about this. So we went to, we had called a meeting with the district buyers lake. So that's where the age gap was changed from a so girl. You got that I got a change, rule change. Yeah. And is that still the rule? It's still the rule. You can play from the age of up to 17 with bias. It's bizarre that you girls. can't just play full stop. I know. If you're good enough, why? Yeah, but we'll see, that's... Changing rooms. Yeah, maybe you need it. separate changing rooms. And, you know, it, you can't just, like, yeah, we let girls play with bias. It's, there's an awful lot of rules. Just, you know, as I said, the dressing rooms needs to be separated from the bias. But up to 17, they should be allowed, and they are allowed now. But that's why I played, because there was no girls' team. So when I was 17, 18, I went to Drunk Angel Ladies. First girls' team i ever seen in my life. Even I'm thinking the stuff that you would do back in the day probably just isn't acceptable now, even around child safety with managers. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we, I remember having, my dad was the manager for our football team. And, you know, from probably five, six years old, we were going abroad on trips and no one was going abroad. So this was unreal. We were going to Liverpool and playing these solar world cups and stuff where the teams from all over the world. But my dad and maybe one other parent, it bring 14, 15 kids away. Should be we absolutely running amok. Yeah, like yeah. everyone's drinking, everything's <laughs> going yeah. missing. And at one point we had a trip, we went to Italy and we must have been 15. And I remember my dad asking one of the lads on the team to do a head count on the bus. And it's your man, he was 15 and he was probably drinking. He'd done a bad head count. Yeah. Counted the full team there, even though one of the lads was missing. One of the lads had gone for, I don't know what he'd done, but he missed the boat. So <gasps> he was stranded in a different country on his own at oh age 15. My. This was pre-mobile phones. This was pre-internet. So we've arrived in Italy and mm. gone, where's our keeper, Joe, yeah. gone? <laughs> It'd have been tried and neglect now. It's easy. Now. <laughs> yeah, it would have been as well. But I think it is, I do sympathise a lot for the volunteers now in football teams because it's all volunteer Everything, driven. Yeah. And there's a lot more procedural hoops and stuff they have to jump through now than you would have had to do then. Well, look, you can't coach any team from underage to senior. You need to do your child course for even to coach now, which is great because, as you know, when I was growing up, I never had a woman coach, never from the time I started playing to the time I finished. I never had a woman's coach. You know what I mean? So that's going to change now, but the child and the regulations has to be in because of all... You know, yourself, the people coming in and just volunteering and not being happy and doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing. Roadman, I know how serious you take your goal setting, whether they're fitness or life-related goals. If you're looking for a powerful ally to support you on this journey, look no further than Huel. Huel has become my secret weapon for when I don't have time to prepare a balanced meal, ensuring I get the nutrition I need without sacrificing time or taste. Plus, it stops me from reaching for the takeaway menu. I always throw a bottle into my backpack when I'm heading into the city to work and it stops me eating croissants and junk food, you know, just generally stuff that don't support my training goals. It's handy and it's nutritious and it's over 22 grams of protein. Huel's perfect for athletes who don't have time to cook or prepare food before a training session. It's convenient, nutritious fuel at your fingertips, ensuring you hit your daily fueling needs for your session. Huel Ready to Drink has over 26 vitamins and minerals in every single bottle. You're getting a whopping 175 health benefits. Plus, they're all natural ingredients, stuff like topeka, sunflower seed, coconut, and more. And the best part, the flavors are amazing. Eight mouth-watering flavors. Iced coffee is in my backpack at the moment. You can get your hands on Huel Ready to Drink directly to your home just by going to huel.com forward slash roadman. That's huel, H-U-E-L dot com forward slash roadman. Like it's a very moving scene. You are 15, 16 years old, crying your eyes out because you think you're not going to play football anymore. Yeah. But that's what kids are like with football because it's your whole life. You don't know anything outside that world. I remember... 
not making a like a Dublin representative team for a Kennedy Cup mm. match, which was like a representative tournament back in the day. And I, That's right. I didn't make the panel for it. And the team used to be announced in the Evening Herald. And so you'd run in, you grab the Evening Herald and you're flicking through. It sounds like we're talking about the 1800s here now, but there was no <laughs> internet. So you're flicking through the newspaper, yeah, yeah. waiting to see your name. You didn't see your name. And I can still remember that feeling. It was like my world ended at 15 years old mm. going, oh my God, what am I going to do? I'm like, finished. I'm done at yeah. 15. Yeah, that's why I like when you, when I just heard a stranger man saying to me, you'll never play again on the, in the bias team. And I was like, oh no, Hugo, he can't say that because he was just a stranger to me where Hugo was like, you're going to play with us for life because there's no girls teams then. But when I went to the girls team the first time, I had to ask Hugo to come with me because I was I was apprehensive. I was nervous. I didn't, you know, I didn't know what to expect. But as you said, when I went into that environment, it was my environment. Yeah. And it was the big, t- it was like a, a whole mountain was that had been took off my shoulders because I was up like that. I didn't know when I was going to be playing football. I didn't know what, I was crying to me mad. I was crying to me dad. And, and next of all, Trish Ryan comes out of nowhere. Come on, I have a girls team. It was like going into a different village, yeah. you know, from Sheriff Street to Drunkandra Ladies up in Talca Park. That's where we play it. And I just, I felt so warm, felt so welcome, so at home. That was a relief. I was like, I don't have to go home now and explain anything to anybody that I'm at to be playing with bias and I shouldn't have been. And, you know, so me just getting on my boots now, going playing and coming home with no hassle was a, a relief for me as well. And were you still living in Sheriff Street when you were playing for... Yeah, um, I didn't leave my mother's till I was 19, 20. When I left my ma's, I was still with Drunkandra ladies. Then I went to Rohini United. So you're going back and forth between these two worlds where you're with your, your crew in Drunkandra, girls who are all, they're ambitious, they're motivated. They all have the same type of goal to break into international teams. They're all ambitious and a certain type of person. And then you're going back to Sheriff Street and it's a world that, at that point, was getting ravaged by the heroin epidemic, like yeah, one of the hardest hit parts of the country yeah. with the heroin epidemic. So I'm assuming you have family members and you have friends who My are aid. touched by that. How do you balance living in those two worlds? Well, see, my uh, my release was me football. Like I'd be in charity, say all day after school playing. There's me friend over there, he's banging up over in the corner. And then another fella drinking over in the other corner and I'm probably in the middle of them playing football because it was just, it was on the street, it was everywhere. But my release and my my comfort zone was a football. Like if I had that, nothing nothing around me seemed, you know, there was nothing around me, just me and me ball and nothing else. But you build a wall around yourself. I built a wall deliberately to keep all this negative away from me. Because, as you said, I had it my family, I had it my friends, it was everywhere. If I walked out of my mother's home, I walked 10 minutes down the road, there's somebody taking a turn on, there's somebody drinking. And I like, literally just walked through that and it was like I had a wall around me. I can't look at this, I have to go to Fairview Park, practice and come back. And that's what I did. And that's all I did. I was just kept my head down. But when I was with Sheriff and when I was with Duncanda Ladies, I'd say between four and five years of that when the heroin app came in, I'd lost about 10 friends. You know, because as your friend said, once heroin gets a hold of you, it's so, so hard to come off. And it's an addiction that it's so hard to come off. And I used to talk to my friends, please, yeah, Livy, I'm going up to get rehab, I'm going to. And then you see them the next week, they're still the same. And then I'm going out to play for Ireland two hours before the game, we're on the bus and I'm... I get a phone call in the hotel, your friend just passed away. Twice it happened to me when I was playing for Ireland. So to me, hearing that made me so sad, but it also gave me motivation. Livy, this is why you're here. This is why you didn't want to go down that route, because I wouldn't be here. Your career, it's you know defined by many things, the appearances, the goals, the stance you took and even helping the girls in 2017 to get better quality, but... Leadership is also one of the common recurring themes all the way through your career. People look to you for guidance, look to you for leadership. Was that something you felt? You said you, you built this wall around yourself in Sheriff Street where no one was gonna no one was gonna suck you into their world, mm. no one was gonna lead you on another path. 
But did you find a pressure to drop that wall and try and say to people, try to be a leader that you were on the pitch in your community at that point? Or you didn't have the strength to stay out of that world yourself and be a leader? No, like um, while I was playing Ireland, I um, eventually got the captain's armband and I got around 27, 26. And I was still, I was coming and going in Cherry And as you said, being a leader, I went into the community, back into Cherry and I went into communities and I spoke to them about the path I took and the path you're taking now at the moment. And I have put my arm around people and, you know, there's another way out of this before you go down this road. And I've spoke to them and then three weeks later I'm getting told I did. You know, so it was taking a toll on me. I was saying to myself, it's no good just doing this and speaking to people. And then three weeks later it was breaking me like a hammer, banging me down every time I was going home. Because every time I was going home, to Sheriff Street, there was no good news. It was either one of my friends is at the dying, somebody else is at the taking up heroin, somebody else is at the taking this. So as you said, when I went into the environment with the girls, the footballers, I let that wall down because I knew it wasn't talking about drugs, it wasn't yeah, talking about drugs. safe space. Absolute 100% safe space. I hated going back home after training and after matches because I knew it was all negative, just negative. But... How I coped her was the girls on the team and uh, speaking about her. And in my later years when I was playing, like being captain for Ireland, I actually let that brick wall go because it was taking a burden on me. And I sort of stepped away from people in charity. I had to later on in life because it was getting to me. I didn't feel, I wasn't in a good place at the time. Yeah. And I was only had to be let go with Ireland as well. And it just hit me that this is what these people are going through or I'm going through now at the moment. Down, depressed, don't want to be here, want to commit suicide. And, you know, like these thoughts came through my head, I'd say twice in my lifetime. But there were bad, bad, bad situations I was in. I had someone on the podcast, uh, name escapes me, but he he gave me a brilliant story that it's, such not to give you advice you're living through this but it's something that i think about a lot when friends kind of reach out for help and he was a rescue diver so when the weather's bad and there's a fishing boat out at sea and it it should be in harbor and it's stuck out there they send the helicopter out and he was the lad who jumped out of the helicopter into the sea to save people that had gone overboard and he said once or twice in a career you will jump out of the helicopter into the sea and you'll start swimming and there'll be five places on the helicopter to save five people and you'll start swimming and there's seven or eight people in the water and you can only save five out of seven or eight. So I said to him, well, how do you choose who you save? And he gave me a brilliant quote. He said, you can only save the people who swim towards you. And it's a brilliant quote for life is, as well, yeah. for like you yeah. going back home to Sheriff Street. You know, I'm sure you want to wave a magic wand and say, I'm oh, going to help everyone. Yeah, but you can absolutely. only help the people that mm-hmm. want to be helped. You can only help the people that swim towards you. Well, you can't bring a horse to the water and then make a drink, you know. So the, the only thing you can do is help. And if somebody is coming over to you and saying, Livy, I need help. I've got numerous of people to help and they've gone on the, the good track. They've gone on to have not successful career, but just off drugs. They don't need them anymore. They're not dependent on them. And that's a good thing from just speaking to them. But as I said, there's numerous parts of that where people don't come back to me. You know, they end up taking their own life. They end up doing overdoses. And while I was growing up, a lot, an awful lot of that happened. And to this day, it's still happening. And I think when you're in the community versus when you're outside the community looking in, when you're outside the community looking in, media label things like, you know, junkies, and they use these disparaging terms. But when you're in a community, you realise these aren't bad people. These are sick people. These are people who have an illness that needs treatment. Mm. So you're losing good people who are ill by suicide, by overdose. That's what I'm saying. You look at these people and when they're not on their drugs, they are so helpful, humble, you know, they give you a last penny, but the minute they take the drug, they're a different person. And that's why you like to speak to them when they're not on it, because when they're on it, they're in another world. They don't know where you are. And then the next day they'll say to you, Livy, was I speaking to you last night? 
You know, and I'll, I'll just say, oh, yeah, we were talking, we just said hello. Because you don't want to go into it, you know, that they're at the speaking to you about because you might get embarrassed because yeah. you don't remember speaking to you, you know. How much of a moment of relief and pride and kind of vindication for this system you'd built for yourself, you'd built this system of a bubble around you and you were going to be the exception in this community. How much of a moment of vindication was that when you got that call up to say you're on the Irish team? Well, see, that's just it. It wasn't a call, it was a letter, letter at the time, yeah. yeah. So how a, does it work? You, how, we, you get called in, because we use that term loosely, you get called into the yeah. national team, but how does it work? Well, well, how I well, how I got into the Irish team was a, there was a training session in Santry, just there at Martin Stadium. Yeah, yeah. Santry, and there was 500 girls of a Friday, and then they whittled it down to 300 on the Saturday, and then you whittled it down to 200 like on the Sunday. Yeah, 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 like an <laughs> exhibition. You know, auditions. So the Monday we went in and there was 200 there and he says, right girls, there's 25 out of the 200 going to be picked. Is it going to go home and you get a letter during the week? So as you know, you're sitting there waiting for the letter and like you, if you don't get the letter, you're not going. So I got the letter, I think the following Tuesday and I says to my ma, I said, ma, I'm going away, I'm going to play European uh, football with Ireland with Spain. And she said, ah, that's very good, isn't it, Livy? <laughs> she hadn't got a clue what it was. Like, you know, my mum just seen me play football. She didn't get the magnitude of it. And I said, no, man, I'm going to play with Ireland. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. But when I said it to me dad, he was like, what? I said, yeah, dad, there's the letter I'm at getting picked to Ireland. FAI letterhead. Yeah, letterhead. Yeah, I actually still haven't had my first letter. And, like, they had a little party and, you know, we celebrated it. And I went to train and met up with the girls about two weeks later and we flew out to Spain. Unbelievable. In Seville. And as you know, like, I mean, you're coming into this environment, all these girls looking around saying, well, obviously I'm good enough to be here, so they're here. So, And then we went to Seville and I'll never forget Seville because we walked down to the stadium and there was 7,000 people there where every single one of them were in a Spanish flag in their hand. And one of our delegates sitting in the stand with them with one Irish flag in her hand. And they, that was the biggest crowd that I've ever seen or played under or seen in the stadium. And it was a bit overwhelming, but the minute you hear your national anthem. Because everyone that kicks a football anywhere in the world dreams of that moment yeah. where their national anthem plays. What's that like? That's why I, I actually, I was crying because I'm very patriotic. I love my country. And when I heard it for the first time and you're standing there with your arms behind your back and your chest out and you're so proud hearing your national anthem and looking at people, looking around down the line and the girls singing their hearts out and it's just an overwhelming feeling that you nobody will ever experience it only if you do experience it. And when you do experience it, it's just, it's like you're playing, you're, in, you're standing here for your country and playing for your country. And it's an overwhelming feeling of just absolute pride. Does it feel real looking back on it? Does it feel like it was <laughs> you or does it feel like it was a movie? It's like a, it's like somebody else is standing there, but you're not. And you're sitting on the bench looking at yourself, standing, singing the national anthem. <laughs> That's the truth. And then when it's over, you have all the nerves, you have all this. But the minute it's over, you're just into football mode and you're straight away into it and... But what I remember of that day was the scream of the people after the Spanish national anthem. And I said to myself, oh my God, we are going to be slaughtered here. Like, you know, because it was their first European Championship. And it was a great game, actually, and it was very even. And the, the Spanish were on the same wavelength of Ireland at the time, were in the rankings and how they were getting on, like with the association and all, we were the same. But it was a nil-nil 88 minute and I think the 92 minute I got the ball in the second in their half and I remember skipping to a player and taking on the shot but when I took on the shot two people came in and tackled me and she gave me a dead leg so when I heard when I was down on the ground after I hit me I heard everyone screaming air bench not the stadium and I was like oh I must have went in but I couldn't get up because my leg was so sore, I was dead, and all the girls come over, and Livia scored, you scored, you scored. And I was like, great girl, brilliant, and got up and looked at the bench, and they were all like, yeah, Livia, it was brilliant. But we didn't, the girls didn't know how big this win was, 
because it's the first time. What year was this? 1991. 1991. It was the first time that an Ireland ladies team was ever at the winning away in the European Championship. No way. And we were established since 1973, so 22, 20, nearly 20 years later. It was the first game that Ireland were ladies ever. And I only noticed how big it was when I got home because there's so much paparazzi. When we drew, when we, yeah, <laughs> when we came in. All down Sheriff Street. Yeah, when we, now when we came into Dublin Airport, like there was the star, the sun, the herald, everyone wanted to speak to us. And, and that's when we found out, like, we were at the making history. Record goal scorers seem to have to score on debut, I think. I was yeah. in Lansdale when Robbie Keane scored. And that was, at the time, no one really knew what that was the start of. Exact same that day away in Seville. I, could you have dreamed that you would... Not, Go on to knock in with 54 goals? 54 goals, absolutely not. Especially at international level because it's so hard at the club. But see, I started off at left side of midfield and I scored a few when I was there. But when I went, when Noel says to me, I'm going to put you up front, I said, yeah, no, no problem. That was 19 years. And I, I never knew in 16 years playing for Ireland that scored 54 goals and seven hat-tricks. What makes it so impressive, I think, is the jump in level. Like we talked about Robbie Keane there, but Robbie Keane stepping from, like try and name a Robbie Keane club, he's played for every club in Europe, yeah. but Robbie Keane stepping from Liverpool, Spurs, top, Inter Milan, wherever he was at that. Yeah. yeah, so the gap, it's it's not a huge jump. You're stepping from playing for Rahini for yeah. a good chunk of this across the international. In Iowa College in Ballymun. Yeah, against <laughs> girls who are, you know, because the Canadian and American infrastructure for lady sports. Well, that's what so I'm much saying. More developed. The Americans, they were, like, when we played them, they were 10, 15 years professional. Yeah. So when we played America, like, the, these were girls who were elite athletes. Like, they, their, professional, their profession was football. They got paid for it. So when we were playing against them and with Germany and Holland, all these girls were semi-pro and professional. We were just amateurs. Because, as you know, Ireland didn't come into force in 2017 where he could pay and all was that. And, but we got, we just, we were amateurs. We just went up to play for their country just with pride. It was just pride. And going into the uh, San Diego stadium with 20,000 American people screaming and going from that to 300 in Richmond Park watching you at home. It's so much, so overwhelming that you don't, you just get on with it. You know, like you, you have to, let the magnitude of the 20,000 people just sink her in for the first five minutes and then get on with it. But it's so overwhelming because you're coming from Richmond Park with 300 people watching you. Yeah. And that's, that 300 people at the time was family members and friends because it didn't get advertised then. There was no, it didn't even get said on the radio. For the first time in years, I have really big targets that I'm super passionate about this summer. And although the warmer months are approaching, I don't want to slip into that trap I see so many riders falling into. Just riding around with no focus and no aim with their friends simply because the good weather is starting to arrive. I'm still using my Watt bike almost daily to keep me sharp and on point with specific sessions all the way into my target events, Rift, Migration Gravel and Leadville later this summer. That's why I'm really happy to be partnering with Wattbike. The Wattbike, Adam, it's sitting next to the desk in the recording studio. And if I have an error between interviews, I jump on. It's removing all those friction points for me. No more 10-minute setup, unfolding legs, banging my knees off stuff, connection issues. It just works every single time. The Adam is perfect for riding Zwift because it has those crisp gear changes. Boom, boom. 1% power accuracy and max gradient capability of 25%. If only my legs had a max gradient capability of 25%. Even if I'm riding those steepest climbs on Watopia, it's absolutely fine. I'm actually riding that custom gearing setup. So if I'm riding a particularly hilly route, I'll select a more climbing suitable gear ratio. It's the business. If you're looking for an indoor trainer, if you're looking to stay sharp this summer and not lose that hard-earned fitness over the winter, I couldn't recommend the Whoop Bike setup any higher. It's the last indoor trainer you're ever going to need. Head on over to whoopbike.com now and check out their full range. A few years ago, I saw a huge gap in the market for an app that was like a cycling coach, but in your pocket. I knew that AI was ultimately going to be the best coach in the world. And I spent about two years of my life trying to make this app happen. Unfortunately for me, it didn't happen. But ever since then, I've kept a really close eye on this space to see if anyone else could succeed where I failed. 
The Breakaway app caught my attention a couple of months ago because Christian Van der Velde, yep, the Christian Van der Velde who came forth in the Tour de France, is one of the co-founders. And it seems that the Breakaway have created the ultimate cycling training companion and they're bringing low-cost coaching to the masses. You'll know from listening to the podcast that my pet peeve is when cyclists head out the door with no plan, no goal, and just roll around without an objective. Don't be that guy! The Breakaway app looks at all your historic training data and it builds a plan around your strengths and weaknesses so you're always going to have the perfect session. They also have integrations which I'm really excited about, Whoop and Aura Ring. The reason I've previously ditched my wearables is because the data just wasn't informing my training. No longer the case. Head on over to roadmantrial.com and you can download their app for free. That's roadmantrial, R-O-A-D-M-A-N-T-R-I-A-L.com and download the app for free. The link to this is in today's show notes. You know what you mentioned there a few times? Pride, pride, pride. Mm. And this is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine because I've been that kid who all I wanted to do was get an Irish cap and it never happened for me. But then stepping back and looking at the FAI being such a shambles for the last 20, 30 years, not kicking on from Italian 90, not kicking on from 1994, you know, not allocating resources equally to the girls and the guys. And they play on that pride. They know how proud everyone is to play for their country. They know they're going to keep turning up almost regardless of the conditions. So because of that, we see such horrific treatments of especially female athletes in your era where you're having athletes that, you know, getting changed in public toilets and giving tracksuits back after games. Yeah, like uh, that was, see, the 2017 thing was a fed up thing. We're not doing it anymore. We're fed up. Just That's for it. anyone that doesn't know what we're talking about, tell us oh, about 2017. 2017, the Irish ladies team had a press conference because the girls were still getting changed into secondhand tracksuits in toilets in the airport. And that was 2017. But in my era, when I played, we did that. That was just a regular thing for us. A regular thing getting under 21 buyers, jerseys, secondhand. Uh, Jerseys to play in, secondhand tracksuits to put on us when we're going, getting changed on boats, getting changed in toilets, getting changed in cars. There's no dignity to that. No, no dignity whatsoever. But the only dignity that we had was the pride playing for our country. Because if we didn't, like, I mean, who goes to Wales on a half, a half six boat in the morning from P&O ferries, gets to Hollyhead, Travels to Wales and then has another five hour travel on a bus. Then expect to play then a match expect, the next yeah, day. Play a match the next day and then come back the next day on the boat. And then to work. And then to work. And this is this, that was a that was a regular thing to us. Toast to Friday, Saturday was you come in, you get your bag, you did, you didn't know what was in your bag, whether it was socks, shorts, you had to look in your bag and if you hadn't got it, you had to beg them to give it to you. A t shirt, the shorts, just so I tire for the weekend that we're going to be there. This is not football gear now. This is not jerseys or tracksuits. This is just the shorts and the t-shirts that you're meant to wear around the hotel while you're there. So it wasn't only the tracksuits and the thing, it was the meals, it was the food, it was the training gear and the turning up. It was so unprofessional that I actually don't know how they got away with it. You know, you could describe you as many words, but one of them no one will ever describe you as is bitter or resentful because everything comes out of your mouth only positive. But with the revelations we've seen, and we've seen in countless biographies from especially the male team through the 90s and into the 2000s, where they talk about their flying in coach and the executives are up front in first class, they're staying in uh, five-star hotels, the lads are in motels. And, you know, the circumstances you're describing, they aren't unique to you. They're happening in the lads team, maybe to not to the same extent. Mm. But the executives had cash. Oh, you yeah. Know, it, does that not, does that not annoy you? Or it absolutely annoys me and frustrates me because I know the cash was there. But as you said, it's not, I wasn't coming around. They weren't spending it on us. They weren't spending it on grassroots. I don't know where the money was going, but they had money. But it doesn't matter. The resources for us was zero. That was it. The buyer, it was the, the buyers got everything with the resources that they had. They kept it away from the buyers as well. Yeah. You know, so that said, that I tell you, the buyers was getting secondhand. We were getting toward world. Yeah. You know, <laughs> literally toward world. I remember we were sitting in 
their hotel and their food hadn't arrived. And they put a banana on a plate, like one banana on a plate, because we couldn't eat their food because there was re regulations. If you eat that food, it might be poison. And, uh, you know, we had to have our own food. But we've gone to Russia and their food didn't turn up. So what do you do? McDonald's. Oh, my God. Yes. McDonald's at KFC. So you're going to play an international? Yes. And, and we had to... piling into McDonald's? Yeah, yeah, for food, because air food didn't turn up. You know, so... And it, this was a regular thing for us. An absolute... Especially if we were going to the likes of Russia, Belarus, you know, Latvia, to play these so-called poor teams. We ended up being like them when we went over. The hotels is absolutely disgraceful. I think we stayed in a brothel at one time. That's the guy's on the street. How did that come about? Because when we went into the hotel, lift up sheets, blood there, went in to have a shower. There was just a, you know, them rub up hall. Oh, coming gosh. out of the thing. I had, I, no matter where I went, I brought my own sheet and my own pillowcase. Religiously. It, do, it doesn't matter if you're staying in a five star hotel. That, that was just the thing that I did. But these hotels had nothing, absolutely nothing. If we stood out on the Bankley, the brickwork would have fell. It was that bad. And I remember my roommate saying, Livy, what are we going to do? Like, I said, well, I'm sleeping in my cars. I'm not sleeping in that. You know, so that's how bad it was. But still, we went into the dressing rooms. I had a shower before we started again because we hadn't had a shower because we were in the hotel that had nothing. And then... Put on your lovely new gear, your lovely second-hand gear and try to feel good about yourself and going out and playing for your country. But that was the norm for us, absolute norm. The only time it got better was probably the last two years of my playing days. We got proper tracksuits, proper women's fit. We got 20 euro a day for training and play, going away. But the crazy thing about this is, you know, sport now, it's... Cycling's been one of the pioneering sports and we call it the accumulation of marginal gains. Mm. And that just means looking for every area that you can find an advantage. Can you find more comfortable pillows? Can you find more comfortable yeah, mattresses? Yeah. What if we change the fabric softener on this kit to something else? And seemingly that might, you might think, oh, that makes no difference. But when you add up hundreds of these oh, little things, it, it turns into a huge difference. Maybe a Absolutely. 3%, 5% difference. In my later, as I said, my later career, I never knew about nutrition. I never knew about like chicken pasta and rice. I only knew in my later years that's, oh, you need a nutrition in a team, you need a physio in a team, you need a doctor, you need it. Because I only seen all this at international level. It wasn't at club level. What we had was a manager and that was it. You know, physio, no thing. But when the nutritionists come in, I never forget, it was about four or five years before we I stopped playing. And I was like, so how come, like, I had a career for nearly 13, 12 years on McDonald's, takeaways, and I'm, to me, I play to the standard of international level. Yeah. So why is all this now nutrition, spaghetti, chicken, rice? And it does actually, girls live by the nutrition nowadays, but then there's, air nutrition was a Mars bar, a few jellies. But there's a company, I'm not sure if you heard of Kitman Labs. Yes, yeah. So Kitman Labs, for anyone who doesn't know, they're actually, uh, one of the founders is from Clontarf. And they look at, they have hundreds of cameras around the pitch. Mm. And they'll, they'll go in and they'll look at Olivia in training and they'll say, okay, her time to sprint from zero to 10 kilometers an hour is, it takes her 2.4 seconds to accelerate to there. And they'll create hundreds of data points about you as an athlete. Yeah. And now they'll have these cameras running every time you're in training and yeah. every time you're in a match. And they'll look for deviations from your baseline. And they'll be able to say to the manager, you know what, if you take Olivia off at 20 minutes to go, we're actually going to get another three games out mm. of this season. So with technology like that, nutrition, physios, you know, instead of 54 international goals, could you have got 60, 64, 70 international goals? Probably. Who knows? Yeah, they, that's a, it's a good point. It's a great point, actually, because imagine if we'd have happened what we had today, yeah. 10 years ago, even 10 years ago. You succeeded not because of that environment. You succeeded in spite of that environment. And I, I succeeded because I was a winner. I just, I don't like losing. Never was, never did. But... The reason why I had a prolonged career, it was for the passion for the game and not just the winning. It's just I love being around the environment. They were my club mates, they were my real mates. And going into camp, 
it just it gives you that little if you're a hundred percent going in, it gives you that little ten percent going in as well. Where at club level is like, ah, yeah, this is every week, you know. But with international level, it was just going into your club mates and you haven't seen them in ages and having a bit of laugh and catching up and so even that little thing gave me a boost. Do you know? It didn't have yeah. to. Be, it didn't have to be. Didn't have to be a sports psychologist. No, it didn't have to be a sports psychologist telling me you need to have fun with your friends. You know, I had it anyway. Because we all had great, great camaraderie in the things growing up. What was your proudest moment? My proudest moment was probably scoring on my debut. Really? Yeah, because I wanted to be the best in the world and the best at what I can do. And scoring on my debut, I actually said to myself, I can do this. I can score against international teams. And I did, and I did it for a long time. And every single time I scored a goal, the feeling was different. It wasn't the same feeling... Every time you score a goal for your, your country, it's completely different, a different sort of pride, a different feeling of being humble, a different feeling of um, the people you are with at the time as well. And what's breaking the record? What's that feel like? Does that feel like, you know, it's scoring brilliant. Mm. Well, I don't know how many people have scored internationally. It's not a lot, but still a sizable amount of people have scored for their country. Mm. Not that many people have broke the record ever, goal scored for their country. That's a pretty you know, writing your name in history books type moment. Yeah, a lot a lot of people say that to me, like, well, what does it feel like to be Ireland's top? I don't, there's no feeling. It's just, it's feeling of when I go into Abbottstown, I see me little trophy cabin and I say to myself, yeah, I did that, I did that. Like, I look at that and I go, I did that. And then when I say I'm the top goal scorer in Ireland, somebody has to say it to me for me to understand how big it is, if you know what I yeah. mean. Because I don't say to myself every day, oh, you're the Ireland's top goal scorer. So if I'm out and I haven't heard it for about a month or three, and then somebody says it to me, I get pride, I get I get a little bit of goosebumps. You know what I think it's important for as well? Like I look at how much my dad poured as a volunteer into a football team for so long. So I can only imagine it's the same volunteers all around the country do this. But it's every person you interacted with from the moment you rocked up to Sheriff Street with your boots inside a plastic bag because you really hadn't even got a bag, Man. rocking up there. Every manager or person that you touched along the way felt pride in that moment as well. That's pretty cool. Absolutely. Like, I mean, I can name the managers on my hand who I had for the, like, Signy Bradish, absolute gentleman, top, top trainer. He's probably the only man that I actually gave 100% for in training for club level. Like, because I was lazy, I was lazy. I didn't, I used to go train. He said, right, what are we doing today? And it was football, I loved it. It was running, going to Tyler. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but Signy, Signy was my club manager. Noel King, absolutely excellent. Uh, Linda Gorman, uh, international manager. Like, every single one of them gave me something different in football. Is there any part of you that is disappointed of the generation you were born in like if you were born 20 years later you were playing for Barcelona or Man United stop I know I've been asked I live you would you like to be 20 years younger I says obviously everyone wants to be 20 <laughs> years younger but I really firmly believe that I would be playing in a top top league and 100% not um throwing roses at myself but I know I'd be able for the likes of Man United and Man City Arsenal women to play in that environment today if I was 26, 25 years of age. Because you look at, you know, the likes of the Irish girls now and they're in the top clubs in the world. Mm. How do you view that? Is there a part of you that's jealous of them? Absolutely. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's not, not jealous of them and what they're achieving and just jealous of why can't it be me? Why can't I be 25 years younger and blah, blah, blah. But... I get pride in the Ireland girls when I see them coming out and play and me knowing that I had a little bit of that for them to carry on and to do and what they're doing now today with the Irish team. But at club level, like, I know 100%. I absolutely love when I hear, like, Izzy Atkins has gone to Crystal Palace, Jess Stapleton went to Brighton there the other day, alone. Like, and these are girls that's been at these clubs for a long time, but obviously they're going to better their career. And it's brilliant because Jess only went over last year. She's not getting a game at West Ham, but she'll get a game now with Brighton, you know. So 
people have to understand the Irish girls going over to England are not just walking into teams. You have to fight and have to train and be top on top of your game to get into these teams. You know, so I know my hard work and my passion where I'm training and doing my stuff, I know I'd be on one of them top teams. But me, my ideal team now at the moment is just Barcelona. Women. I've seen some highlights recently on YouTube and Absolutely, like 90,000 watching them for the Champions League final. And like even Savvy is at the saying, even Pep Guardiola is at the saying that football is better than men's and women's put together. Like, I mean, the combinations, the three by threes, the, they don't stay in the one spot. And I remember being on a podcast and one of the girls says, who's Isaac Barcelona? I think women's sport, women's football is in an interesting place because there is sports where women's sport is actually just way more enjoyable to watch than men's. Like, I'll only watch women's tennis. I won't watch men's tennis. Men's tennis is shit. It's, they're too powerful. There's too many aces in it, so you don't get the rallies. The rallies so women's yeah. tennis is way more enjoyable to watch. With the direction football has gone, I could see in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, I'd be just so drawn to men's football because it's the physicality of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. The way it's gone, though, with FIFA... The physicality's gone. It's non-contact. It's nearly like basketball. Well, me at the moment now, I think the, the women is doing the 50-50s and sliding tackles and blah, blah, blah. And they're just getting up and getting up yeah. and play. Like I was watching, I don't know who it was yesterday, and I was like, oh my God, get up. You know, like, I mean, the fall, the men is falling down, literally with a push. Yeah, diving's a new Yeah, art. well, I, but you see, that's the referee's fault. That The referee sees him diving, he needs to book him, but they're not getting booked. And they're like diving for penals that can change the direction of a game. But it seems like a decision that was taken at FIFA that this is the direction maybe 10, 15 years ago that they want football to go. And I actually think if that's the decision they've taken, that they want football to be more like basketball than rugby. They want to take that physicality out. Like players like Vinnie Jones, the limited talent, but just bruisers. They wouldn't make yeah, it in the modern Vinnie, game. That's what I was going. Vinnie Jones were making nah. the modern game. I need to do with Dennis Wires. Yeah. Because the two, they were rough players. They were, But what you said about the physicality, there's absolutely none. You're not even allowed to go for a ball for a, a keeper in the men's game. Yeah. I'm talking about, like, I mean, in the women's game, it's the same, but... I just think, I've said this since last year, Anthony, and I'm going to say it again. The women's game is going to take over from the men. Absolutely. Because I think, obviously, men have more testosterone, and if it's a pure physical contest, Mm. people are going to prefer to watch the Irish men's rugby team than the Irish women's rugby team, because it's such a physical sport. But with the direction football is going, where physicality isn't the most important thing, Mm. it's skill, it's organisation, it's imagination. These are values that are cherished more now in football. I can see women's football eclipsing the lads. Definitely the Irish oh, international it, team already yeah. has. I've said it, I said it last year and I said it every single podcast I've done, I've said it. The first million dollar or million pound player of a girl is going to be this year. And I know that for a fact. There's a girl gone from Columbia now. She's gone to Chelsea because Sam Kerr got injured. And that's a 450,000 transfer. Yeah, That's the biggest so far this year. And it's not stopped, it's not finished. And are the girls getting paid well now? Absolutely. Like, I mean, as I said, we got paid 30 euro a day for going training and playing for our country. Girls are getting 30,000 a day now to play for the country and play for the clubs. There's a difference. You know, and long, long may it last. And it is going to last because it's not going to go backward. Women's football is just going to grow and grow and grow. And any company, enterprise... If they don't get on the bandwagon and get onto a team and sponsor and be involved, they're in the wrong environment. Because if I was a company now at this moment, this day and age, as you said, the women's, it, it's going to explode. So if you have a company, do get onto them. <laughs> and I'm not, it's not, I'm not saying it here just now, but I'm talking about any company because I said that on every podcast. If I had my own company, I'd be on top of a women's game for the revenue for the everything, because every single team in the top tier in England has a sponsor and has a company with them. Your career intersected with one of the greatest Irish athletes ever at an international level, Katie Taylor. Yeah. What was that like playing with Katie Taylor? <laughs> she, she's apparently a good footballer. Katie, Katie, the made it. Katie, it had made a centre midfield like Roy Kane. I think Katie would have made a cyclist. She would have made a Formula One yeah, driver. Yeah, true. She'd have made a basketball player. She'd have made a tennis player. Whatever she wanted to be. Because um, 
we used to go to a tournament with the Irish team in Portugal. And I remember just one day talking to it and I was like, what do you want in life? Is it boxing or football? I said, you're here. I said, you're training, you're getting up at half five, doing your boxing training, coming back, having breakfast with us, doing your football training, then going home, then doing more training, boxing. I said, what do you want? She said, Livia, I want to be... She told me then that she wanted to be an Olympic boxer. And I said, well, you're in the wrong environment. You need to either pick one or the other because you can't give 100% yeah. to two. And that's when she decided she doesn't want to be a boxer. Did you know, just being around her, demeanour-wise, this is someone's going to be a champion? Absolutely. What girl gets up at half five in the morning with the Irish football team to train boxing for two hours and then come and play have basketball and then play air training for two hours, go back and have a lunch, do air training for another hour and then do our own training. I was in awe of in awe of our physicality, our training and our dedication. If you could rewind all the way back to Olivia growing up in Sheriff Street, what piece of advice would you give yourself? It's a hard one it is because... I never wanted to leave Sheriff Street, but I had to leave it to get where I wanted to. But the advice I'd give young Olivia is I should have stayed around in Sheriff Street. I feel like I could have done more in my community to help them to get out of the situation that they were in. But I tried. I did some of the work, but I would love to go back and see could I have helped another few people. Olivia, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much, Anthony. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.